Hi, friends, and welcome to another Robcast. In this episode, I'm going to introduce you to my friend Glennon. And if you are a Glennon fan, I don't even have to say her last names, do I? Because I just say Glennon, and if you're a fan of hers, you're like, oh my word, Glennon. Otherwise known as Mamastery. I was recently in Florida. I went to Florida for the day, and I got to spend time with she and her husband, Craig, meet their kids. We drove around, saw her town, hung out in her kitchen, and then uh, I got to interview her for the Robcast because I was like, I have to introduce her to my peoples. So in this episode, you will see quite quickly why so many people find Glennon such a compelling, honest, healing, inspiring voice. Um, I knew the interview, I, I knew she would have very uh, profound things to say, but it was like one minute in, I found myself... Whew, just struck with what an extraordinary voice uh, this woman has. So that's going to happen in just a second. First, let's talk about the past couple days. I was in Chicago for the second tour stop of the How to Be Here experience. And, uh, you know, it's like I had this sense there was some way to do like a big living room where we could talk about the ideas in this book and people could interact with them and we could see where it takes us together but already just the Denver and the Chicago days it's like doing something to me uh it's like we're all going somewhere together um I I I, I can't say enough about it so this weekend is Phoenix um Friday night I'll be at Changing Hands booking bookstore in Tempe and then Saturday Crescent Ballroom. We'll do the How to Be Here experience, the Crescent Ballroom. By the way, Crescent Ballroom has some of the best tacos I've ever had in my life. I literally was like, should we do an event in Phoenix? Well, if we could get the Crescent Ballroom, we could get the tacos. <laughs> I'm telling you, go for the tacos. And then we're going to have a day together. Like, I'm telling you, I don't think I've ever, I don't know if I've ever been a part of something that is pulling out of people, but it's pulling stuff out of me that, oh, it's astounding. And then uh, the and then a couple weeks after that, Miami, and then Durham, and then Austin, and uh, there's a couple tickets left for each of those, and uh, that's what we got going on. Would love to see you there. How to be here? The book is out. Get a signed copy at Barnes and Noble or come out to one of the signings. And March 29th, Pete Holmes and I will be doing uh, another one of our two-man shows at Largo here in Los Angeles, and uh, we would love to see you there and all sorts of other things going on but for now my brothers and sisters it is my pleasure to introduce you to glennon doyle melton this interview uh took place on her back patio and i think you will see why i consider her to be such a great friend and such a compelling voice for hope and healing, and truth, and revolution. Hi, everybody. <laughs> and <what laughs> Are we already laughing? I think we're already laughing because I can't believe we're on the air, but we're on my porch. <laughs> Friends, uh, this is Rob, and welcome to another Robcast. We are in Florida with Glennon Doyle Melton. Welcome to the Robcast, Glennon. Oh, I'm so <laughs> excited to be here. Otherwise known as Mamastery. We are in her backyard patio 
deck. So if you hear birds squawking or leaf blowers or such, that's because we're outside. So that just felt like the right place to do this. Yeah. And kids are doing homework mm-hmm. in various parts of the house. And that's what's going on here. So um, I'm so glad that you could. I'm so glad we could do this. I can come over to your house. I know. Like it's totally normal. I know. We're just hanging out, but we just happen to have microphones. <laughs> We've been hanging out all day. Um, okay. So I remember hearing about you years ago and your writing just was, is so, there's so many questions I want to ask you about that. But I remember when we first met, you telling me how it all started was with the need to be honest. Yeah. You had honesty welling up within you. And I was so fascinated with that's how you described it. Can you take us back there to the first, those first moments when you started writing? Yeah, well, the way I ended up writing is that I was desperate to just have somewhere to be completely honest and to tell the truth. And I think that started really, really young. I mean, I, I think that part of when I became, actually, when I became an addict, I remember this moment with my parents where um, they were looking at me and saying, do you ever tell the truth? Do you ever tell the truth? Because, you know, addicts just get into this yeah. situation where we're lying all the time. And... Um, I remember thinking, I've been trying to tell my truth, tell the truth my whole life. Like, we addicts, we kind of end up as these insensitive liars, but we start off as people who are just absolutely unable to like go along with the whole "I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine" thing, and we find somewhere to tell the truth, right? So people tell the truth with food or booze or sex, or they just say, "I'm not fine somewhere." And so, oh, okay, so the the addiction is the truth is, yeah, the, is like, the the life crying out yeah. telling the, telling the truth yeah i mean i remember being in the mental <laughs> i know you asked me about writing but i remember being when i was in the mental hospital in high school sitting next to a girl who was talking we in this group therapy and she was talking about her life and what she'd been through and it was a f- disaster like what she had been through and suffered with her family and she had she was a cutter and i remember i was only 16 but i remember looking at her and thinking oh you just you tell the truth that way like, that's how you say I'm not fine. Uh, you tell the truth on your arms, right? Yeah. Like, I tell the truth with this binging and purging thing or, or, or the booze. But um, I don't know. I think sometimes it's, it's really hard to tell the truth with your words. Like, extremely. Yeah. It's a risk to tell the truth with your words. It's really hard for other people to hear the truth. And so, you know, we just find other ways to say it. But when I got sober, so I, so I got sober the day I found out I was pregnant with my son. I was 25. I'd been make an alcoholic for I guess 15 years by then because um, I dropped out of life and into addiction when I was 10 with bulimia and um, I was actually on the bathroom floor holding the pregnancy test I called my sister she came and picked me up and took me to my first meeting and I just remember sitting at that meeting and being like oh my god these are the first honest people I've ever met yeah. in my freaking life like it was like they were the jig was up you know they were all like battered up and beat up looking, but they were honest. You know, they were just like waving their little white flag of, you know, I tried this thing on my own and it didn't work and I need a higher power. I need other people. And I remember thinking the worst thing is that I have to leave this meeting. Like I don't, I want to live. go back to the other world. I just want to live in this meeting. Like I can, if I can do life this way, I can do it because these people aren't saying, oh, I can do life because it's easy. They're saying, okay, it's hard as hell. And we're still going to do it. And the way we're going to do it is we're just going to be really honest about how hard it is. Because that is the only thing I find that makes life easier is just stop pretending that it's easy. Yeah. You know, and find other people who will 
who will sit around and do that with you too. So I just went home, was like, I just want to make my whole life into a meeting since they won't let me live there. <laughs> since they keep sending me home. Right, because right. they're like, it's the meeting's over. Right, and you have to go home, and that's just the glitch in the system. That... <laughs> and so... That's so good. <laughs> so good. I remember, you know, going... The first thing, I mean, the, everybody tell when you're an addict, everybody tells you to get sober. And then you think that sobriety is going to be awesome because everybody's been telling you to do it for so long. But what you first learn when you get sober, you just start remembering all the reasons you started drinking. <laughs> like, yes. Like, you have Now you have a very clear head right, to remember to all remember the reasons why you wanted to just get out of this. It felt like a solid decision at one point, right? <laughs> so um, all I can tell you is I felt like marriage and, and um, parenting were not at all the way that, you know, I'm a child of Disney. They just, I, I was promise that the marriage was the finish line like after you get married everything's just easy yeah and you're just happily ever after and you're never lonely again which was not my experience parenting i mean i love and fiercely love my kids but i just think there's a big difference between loving your kids and loving parenting your small children like parenting small children especially for someone with anxiety so hard good lord yeah um and so i just truly became desperate for a place to be honest about all of that because it truly feels like, yes, relationships are all that matters, connection, all that matters, and the most beautiful parts of life, but they are also the most brutally difficult parts of life. And it sometimes feels like in real life that if you admit that they're hard, then that's like some kind of admission of failure, which is so weird. Right. Because sometimes relationships are hardest for the people who are showing up or yeah. engaged and, and yeah. vulnerable and transparent and doing it right. And you know? everybody you admire, everybody who builds a business, raises a family, makes a movie, whatever it is that they did, whenever they're interviewed, they're like, yeah, it was really hard. So hard. <laughs> yeah. Everything that mattered to you, the person who brought you that gift, when they're asked, how was it? How did you make it? How did it come into the world? It's always, well, there were like 19 obstacles. Exactly. I wanted to quit five times. Always. All Anything the stuff that doing. matters. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So I tried, I think being really honest in real life is just hard. I mean, we're used to surface conversations and if you go too far, I mean, Craig and I have a signal that's, it's like this, he makes this signal with his hand across his neck, which means I need to like reel it in, in real life. Like I need to, <laughs> like that person oh, actually like doesn't want to hear how oh. I really am. Oh, so you're somewhere <laughs> socially and somebody's like, how are, how are you, Glenn? And, and you actually start I telling them. I just answer. And he looks at you like, like. Oh, honey, no, 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 we're not doing that here. That's, that's a saying in our family. We're, ac- we're not doing that here. That means like, mm, that person doesn't really want to know. They're just trying yes. to help their kid at the playground, right? So yeah. writing though. Like, I remember the first time I wrote something down, it felt more to me like looking into a mirror than looking into an actual mirror has ever felt like. I just felt like, oh, that's me on that paper. When did you start writing? Um, There's when you started the blog, when you first mm-hmm. put stuff online. But did you have a history with writing before that? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I had a history of writing in my family. I, I was so lost to alcohol for so long that I had no consistent patterns in my life, so okay. I wouldn't have been writing. Yeah. But um, everything was blurry also for a long time. Yes. <laughs> but my family is a family of writers. So my dad and I have always communicated in letters. Oh, and my dad and I can have conversations in letters that we could never have in real life. So I think I learned that you can bear your soul in a way in writing that you might be uncomfortable doing in real life. 
person. So you wrote, like, when you left home, you started writing letters with your dad? Mm-hmm. And he's written me a letter every single birthday and Christmas since I was born, just recapping the last year of my life. So on Christmas, that's my favorite thing. At the end of the day, when everyone goes home, I read letters from him. Still. To this day, he does yeah. that. Just of the last year, of everything he's been proud of, of every bit of growth he's seen, of every obstacle, even when I was drinking all the time, every year, a letter. Just I'm, like a and I'm gonna, of my I'm gonna life. get to meet him. Yeah, tonight. Get to meet oh, him tonight. My word, Bubba. So, then you, at some point, you get up in the morning. You mm -hmm. get up early, and I remember you telling me you got up early and you wrote something. Yeah. Well, the first thing I did was I did this Facebook list. Okay, so there was this thing going on called the 25 things, and people were just listing 25 things about themselves. So I thought, I could do that. So I got on Facebook and wrote my list. And then I posted it, and I came back an hour later, and it was just terrified because my list had been shared a ton of times. And I had something like 20 new emails in my inbox, and I had a bunch of voicemails from my sister which means usually means that I've done something that's like not normal that she's calling me to tell me there's going to be a problem. So <laughs> so my number 6 on Facebook was on that Facebook list was um so I'm a recovering alcohol and food addict, but I still find myself missing booze in the same twisted way we can miss people who repeatedly beat us and leave us for dead. So I thought that was true and mm -hmm. good. But then I checked other people's lists. And my, my friend Lisa's number six was, my favorite snack food is hummus. <laughs> <laughs> and Rob, every single one of mine were like that. They were, that was like the lightest one, you know. I mean, they were all like that. And everyone else's lists were completely – I just didn't read other people's lists first. I thought, oh, we're just – if you're telling things about yourself, you're going to tell things, about, things yourself. about yourself. <laughs> right. But No. We weren't doing that there. <laughs> so when you were making this list, mm -hmm. did it flow easily? Oh, yes. It felt like freedom. It felt like a, the you real me was You were typing as fast as you could Yes. Think. Yes. It was just like, this is the juice. This is it. This is what I've been trying to get out. This is me. And, and so the, the, the awesome thing was, the terrible thing was I had that horrible, I think Brene calls the vulnerability hangover. Yeah. it's like you just wish you could get it all back. That's all I, I feel all, all the time. That. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then the other thing is that all those emails were just from people who I had known my whole life, but had never shared the most important thing about themselves. So they were reading the list saying, oh my God, me too. Oh my God, me too. So that's when I was like, this is, this truth telling thing is scary, but it's actually a way to meet people for real. Not yeah. like the fake versions of people, but like the actual yeah. insides of them. Yeah. So that's when I started getting up every morning and writing. And it was I was dripping with children. I had like four million children by Did then. Did you say dripping? Yeah, dripping <laughs> with children because I was staying home with them. Yeah. Which is so just... young kids. Yeah, I, they were so This is little. how many years ago? Eight years. Seven years ago because my littlest was an infant. And so you started getting up at what time? I think back then it had to be like quarter to five. At 4.45, mm -hmm. you get up, mm -hmm. and, you, and you, you write something. I was in the playroom because we had no – we lived in this teeny, teeny house. So I would, like, step over my kids' toys. Um, the deal with Craig was I'm going to write for an hour and a half every morning. And this is 
sacred time. Like for if this house is burning down, I want you to take the kids and leave. But I'm not leaving the computer. For I just knew I had. It was like part of my sobriety yeah. survival. Um, and you'd write from 4:45 to when? Till I think an hour and a half. And okay. I promised myself that I was gonna. The first month, I used to just send my thoughts to my friends in an email. Until. One of my friends actually respond. And then I'd just wait for, for them to respond to my random thoughts for the day. And if they didn't respond, I would email them again and say, did you get my thoughts and would you like to respond? And then <laughs> at the end of the month, one of my friends sent me directions to start a blog because she said, that way it'll be optional for people to read what you're writing. We won't have to respond to you every day if you just start a blog. And that's how Monastery started. Because so my friends didn't want to read my stuff anymore. <laughs> so you start the blog, mm -hmm. and you start getting comments and feedback and energy. Yeah, immediately. I just started posting it on my personal Facebook page. So I'd write something on Momastery, and then I'd post it on my personal Facebook page. And people just, I mean, to this day, I still never, I never have promoted it anywhere. It was all just completely organic. People were just really interested in talking about the hard stuff and f and the funny stuff and do you do you and because your writing has this energy there's twists there's turns there's turns of phrase that i've read stuff that you have written and the turn i'll be like that your there's a playfulness with language with extremely heavy subject matter did you know that your writing was good or did you just, it just, this was just, this is how it needs to be said. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Was I there, mean, how much did you think about the craft of it? Like that's a good, well-structured paragraph and how much of it was just, that's what it needs to look like. Um, well, I mean the heavy stuff mixed with the playful stuff is how I've survived everything. That's yes. how my family survives. Yeah. There's nothing there, it, I can't think of anything that we don't joke about. I mean, <laughs> the worse it is, the more you need to joke yeah, about the more, it. Right, 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 right. The heavier, the lighter. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, that whole, we say brutal, like the beautiful stuff and the brutal stuff have to be smushed together all the time. I can't understand things separate from, you know, the, the end, both of life. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I just, I do what all writers do. I'd just write something and it would be crap and then I'd just... But it would be out, so it would and feel good. And you would hit. I remember you saying to me your commitment was to hit publish at whatever yes, seven a.m. the end or of the time. That's it. No matter what, it's going out. And so that kept me from any kind of perfectionism. Yeah, right, right. You know, because that was like my goal wasn't to write something amazing. My goal was like to show up, to move my fingers at the keyboard. I just felt like I owed it to myself to do that. I, I just felt like I owed it to myself to get my butt in front of the computer, write the, to the best the best I could. As true as I could, and then put it out there and let it go. It's interesting to me. You'll read an interview with the band, and they were like, "I don't know. That album has ten songs. We brought a hundred songs into the studio. Mm -hmm. Like you have to make so much." Mm -hmm. um, and that when people are like I'm thinking about writing, I'm like, "I'm not interested in having that discussion. Call me when you're writing." Exactly. Because that's where. The, you have to actually make lots of things and then we'll know what we have on our hands. Absolutely. Are there any that stand out? Are there any 
posts in those first year or two? Are there any topics or posts that stand out to you that like, ooh, I hit an, that one? Um, are there any subjects that you were surprised at how many people resonated with? Or are there any mm-hmm. takes you had on a topic or thoughts where you did not expect it would grab people like that? Yeah. I mean, I think the first post like that was this post I wrote called Don't Carpe Diem. <laughs> and it was about this phenomenon that happens to parents of small children where you'll be out and your children will be melting down and it'll be the worst moment ever. And someone will inevitably, it's usually like an older woman and she'll stop you and say, oh, I hope you're enjoying every moment. And it's this weird thing that happens to young parents where we're like told that this is going to be the best time of our lives. And so that adds this like horrible expectation on top of a very hard job that like it, now we not only have to be doing it really well and perfectly, but we better damn well be enjoying every moment too. So that's the only way to be successful, right? And that's not how I how I understand parenting at all. Like every day is the best of times and worst of times, you know? So the way I survived it was there's no good day in parenting, you know? I mean, especially with little ones because it can all, it can be wonderful and then it can be horrible the next day. But there are these moments and we call them at Mom's Dairy the, the Kairos moment. So there's Chronos time where you're just trying to get yeah, through it. Chronological, like right. a watch. Yeah. Right. And it's just and when you have little kids, a day is a year. Right. Um, but there are these teeny pockets of time, these Kairos moments, where you just look at your kid and you can't even you just want to explode for the joy of, you know, this being that you've brought into the world one way or another. Um, and it just those little moments, I mean, they're over in a second. But those moments are what makes parenting worth it. You know, that yeah. one moment a day makes the whole rest of the work worth it. So it was just this idea of stop trying to enjoy every moment and just find like two stunning, breathtaking moments a day. And that's a success. And let the rest go. And I was like, I'll just write this. We'll see. And it just turned out to that's the one, the first one that went viral. So that's it. So it felt so simple and straightforward. Mm-hmm. And like, duh. Mm-hmm. But you needed to say it. Then you post it, mm-hmm. and it's people. And that's why you have to get up every day and write. Because I would never have thought that that post would have resonated. So I could have easily yeah. not written that one. So if I didn't have the discipline of button the chair every day, you're going to write something. That post never would have gotten written. Because I didn't think it would be anything great. So I got this one on Don't Carve Right DM, but it's not really that great. Right. So it's just sort of sitting in a file. <laughs> right. It's in the turd file. Like, I don't know what this is. Right. <laughs> right. So the discipline of I will write it and I will put it out every day is why some. That's something absolutely resonates. what I relate to in things I've made over the years. Things where I was like, that is so simple and straightforward. That has no extra sauce on it. And then people are like, oh. I, go, I give up. Right. Totally. I give up trying to guess what will connect. Right. So it just grows. I mean, and then there's like 100,000, 200,000. There's a million people within six months, a year, two years. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm just horrible at the right, numbers. Right, right. But there um, were a lot of people. I was thinking, I was I was like, the only answer she's going to give to that is, yeah, sure. Exactly. Um, I don't know anything about the numbers. And what do you, so then you start getting asked to speak places. Yeah. And which is so ridiculous. <laughs> because I feel like asking a writer to be a speaker, it, they're not related at first. like we become writers so we can stay in our pajamas. 
<laughs> right? That's why I wanted to connect deeply with people but never see them, right? I wanted to like, to I don't know. I just wanted to know the real people but never have to like go to coffee. And I'm just a raging introvert. I love you until we actually meet. Exactly. And then it's a whole different we thing. We can know each other so well over text. <laughs> <laughs> so the first time somebody said, it's like this weird thing where if your writing resonates at all, well, clearly you're going to be a public speaker, which is to me like yeah, terrifying. Right. It's a little right, bit of a shifty right. premise there, yeah. So I had no clue. I mean, and then it started so crazy. I think like my third speaking engagement ever was a TED Talk. It just went so fast. And my sister, who is like just running the show, yeah. is like, you know what? We're just going to just try. Just try. Just get up there and try. I'm like, you want me to try? On a TED Talk. I'll try. We'll see if I can speak. So um, when you spoke places, there were people who had been reading your writing. Mm -hmm. Because there's a kajillion of these people. Mm -hmm. Um, When you get up to speak and these people have heard you before, they feel like they know you. Mm -hmm. There must have been extraordinary energy and love in the room. There always is. I mean, speaking has turned out to be one of the things I think I was made for. It's the scariest thing. I still get actually physically ill before I speak because I'm so nervous. They tell me that will go away, but it's been a couple years. I'm 25 years in and I get nervous every time. That's so depressing to me. (laughs) 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 Fabulous. I figured I was like a year away from calmness. but um, No, sorry. Well, I mean, maybe that's proof that there's some magic going on. I don't know. That's what I tell myself. But yeah, it turns out that speaking is an excellent thing for an introvert to do. It's so, it's like writing. Because there's still, okay, so for me, terror would be like a cocktail party. I just, I mean, first of all, because I don't drink anymore, but also just for an introvert, that kind of, I mean, maybe it's the small talk, maybe it's... A short series of begin, middle, and end (sighs) conversations conversations where you launch into it, you discover whether or not you're even going to talk, and then there's that how you get out of it. And then on to the next one, to the next one, when you would probably just prefer to find one person and actually connect with them. Oh, absolutely. And that's what I try to do. Like I find, mm-hmm. usually you can find the introverts in the corners, on the couch, yeah. you know, places where they're stationary. I usually try to find those people. Um, but speaking is not, there's like this, there is a separation between you and the audience. And it's sort of... Um, a performance. I don't know. There's something that's safe about it for me. It feels a lot like writing. It's like I'm going to create yeah. this thing. Put it in the room. Yeah. I'm going to create this thing. That's, it's just like writing a blog post or writing a book or, or um, painting a painting. I'm going to create this thing and I'm going to present it. And then I'm going to let it go. And what are you talking about in these first talks? The same things. I mean, I talk about pain and recovering from pain and healing and um, God and relationships and how all those things are all just completely the same thing. (laughs) And then you start like getting, like raising money or you you get people rallying around causes. Mm -hmm. How far after Momastery, then you go out and how soon do you start doing some of this flash... The love flash mob. Mob giving. Well, I think it was just a a progression of things. I mean, I think that pretty much most artists that I know and love 
always end up sort of becoming activists. And I think it's because, like, an artist's job is to just pay close attention. Yes. To notice, right? Yep. To notice people and to notice the world. And I think if you're paying close enough attention, like artists have to do to be good, you just fall in love. I mean, that's what I, I, my job is to pay such close attention to people um, so I can write about them, so I can write about being a human. I, I don't know how you can notice, really notice people and not fall in love. And then when you fall in love, you just want to serve and help. So I think that good art kind of always turns into activism. It always goes way. there. Yeah. There's like it's a like natural trajectory built into it. Yeah. That these ideas actually take you somewhere. Yeah. Yes. And you, it's all to the same place. It's all this place of service. Yes. You know, no, we have these gifts and we all think they're so awesome and amazing. Like, and we don't know where they'll take us, <laughs> but they all for, take us to the same place. Yeah. You know, we do, we show up with, for, and to use our gift and it always like, it's a current that takes us directly to serving each other. Mm -hmm. you, know, you heal yourself and then you end up healing other people. So that's what happened. I don't know. I just started falling in love with my audience and started falling in love with, um, the people I was interacting with, and then Together Rising started, and these love flash mobs. So the way the first love flash mob started is I was just feeling intense gratitude one day for the people, my readers. And I um, was like, okay, I have to do something with this gratitude. It's an energy. Um, it helps me to, with my depression to understand it as an energy that I have to do something with. So that helps me understand my positive emotions too. So gratitude, energy, do something. Um, and so I said, I'm going to open my email and I'm going to just respond. I'm going to do the first thing that someone asks me to do on email because people are always asking me to do stuff. <laughs> so I open an uh, email and it's from this amazing woman who lives in Indiana and she runs a, a teen home, a, mother, uh, a home for teenage moms. And she's just written me her story, and it's beautiful. And she says she's just brokenhearted because there's this girl who came to her the night before, and she's 13 years old, and she had a little baby boy with her. And this home had an empty bed that they could have let her in, but because of red tape and funding, they just couldn't. They weren't allowed. So she's just writing to me this story just to tell me because her heart was broken about it. So I was like, this is it, obviously. This is what I'm going to do. So I call her up, and I say, all right. I want to give you the money to help you get this girl in the house. And she goes, that's amazing. And I said, just tell me how much you need. And she says, $88,000. Oh. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, we First need a new plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, next email. New plan. Yeah. Wow. So, but I'm on the phone with her and I'm like, wait a minute. If I was so moved by this story. Other people would be. Yeah. Like, oh, wait a minute, this is not a problem because I happen to be the luckiest human being on earth and I happen to be a part of this community of the most amazing people on the planet who are going to want to do something with this. And so that was the moment where I thought, you know what, this is not about me. Like, th This is not about me saving the day. This is about inviting a bunch of people into this beautiful story. So that woman and I, um, Sarah, from this place called Project Home Indy in Indianapolis, um, in Indiana, stayed on the phone for hours, created this beautiful piece of writing together with pictures of her house and um, a plea to my audience. And we posted it the next morning and we decided to ask them to fund it. But we decided that we weren't going to let anyone donate more than $25. 
And that was the magic of it because we just wanted the community to do it together. We wanted everybody to feel equally a part of it, whether they had a lot of money, whether they didn't. We just want to level the play, playing field, right? And I also think what stops people from giving is not knowing how much. Like yes. They don't think their giving will make a difference. Right, you know? right. So anyway, I don't know, four hours after I posted it, we had like $180,000. Average, <laughs> average donation was like $17. <laughs> and so I, she just cannot believe it. So I call her and I'm like, go get her. Go get the girl. We go, I want to see her in the house. We've got way more than enough money. So they go get her on the street and bring her to the house. And I got to go visit this girl six months later. She's like straight A's. Amaz she said to me, I've never gotten a break in my life. This is the first time anyone's ever told me that I was worthy of this. Just a bunch of strangers said, yes, we want you to have this life and we want you to be cared for for once. So, I mean, then we had so much money and then I said, you know what, make an Amazon wish list. Like, ask all the girls in the house, what do they need? What do they want? What do they need for their babies? So then they created an Amazon wish list. So then two days later, this newspaper goes to their house. I'm sorry, a news camera goes to their house and the teenage house, the, the um, porch is just filled from floor to ceiling with boxes from all over the country of people who've just sent them, you know, pajamas for their babies and diapers. And they can't even, like, take in all the stuff. It's like people are just so good. And they just need to know how. Yeah. How, how, how. So that's how it started. Now we do one, like, every six months. The last one raised. You were in on the last well, one. Well, I was going to say, the last one, the Compassion Collective, mm -hmm. Where? how did that one start? Refugees in Europe, fleeing yeah. all the violence in Syria. Yeah, so actually that one started in Haiti. So Amy and I, who is my partner in crime along with my sister at Monastery, went to Haiti to do a love flash mob to raise, um, I think, like $170,000 for a maternity center in Haiti that our friend Tara does um, called Heartline, this amazing group. So we went to Haiti came home, did the love flash mob for Haiti. While we were in Haiti, we were at dinner. There was a midwife from Berlin at this dinner, and she started talking about this um, refugee camp she was working at in, in Berlin. And Amy, who's the most incredible human being I've ever met, were in Haiti, and I can see Amy's eyes just getting bigger and bigger because I can tell she's already with these refugees in yeah. Berlin, and that's where we're going next, and yeah. I'm trying to reel her in. And I'm saying, Amy... We're in Haiti. Let's be in Haiti. We're going to be in Haiti. So when the we, we do the flash mob for Haiti and the numbers go through the roof. So we needed like 170,000. We had 400,000 by the end of the day. No one donated more than $25. So we had 400,000. <laughs> right. So Amy goes, she looks at me and we're looking at the numbers and she says, you know what we're doing. This is now for the refugees. So then, in the middle of the day, we switch the love flash mob over. We say, we've had enough for Haiti. Now we're going to the refugees, okay? That's how this started. Amy just um, connected with a group called Help Refugees, um, and she learned everything she possibly could about the situation over there. And, um, I mean, what happens when you learn this stuff? Your heart just breaks yeah. open. Yeah, you yeah. can't think of anything else. Yeah. You know? And so we all put out, everybody, maximum gift, 25 and in two days, how much money did everybody pitch in? A million. It was like a million three hundred something thousand. <laughs> <laughs> so crazy. I laugh because it's so awesome. Yeah, and I think for that one, people cheated a little bit and gave a little more, but I think the average donation was like thirty-two dollars or something. There were just a few 
Cheaters. I love those cheaters. If I would have showed you that alone, let alone, then when did your book come? Come the first book came somewhere in there. Yeah, before I don't. <laughs> so bad with it. 2013. 2013. You wrote a book. Yeah. Which yeah. became like a bestseller. So some, if I would have years ago showed you this life and be like, oh, this is where it's going to go, Glennon. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to be involved in this. You're going to be doing these love flash mobs that raise astounding amounts of money to get real people real help. Oh, there'll be some New York Times bestselling books in there. There'll be some tra- traveling and speaking. You'll you'll eventually move out of the closet where you were writing into, <laughs> as I saw office. you now have an actual office. Um, there'll be a team of people who work at Monastery and like, what would you have said to all that? Well, I mean, this is one of the, what one of the things I exist for is to talk to people who may have been in lives or situations like I was in the first half of my life. Um, I mean, I had more than one moment where I was absolutely certain that the only way out was suicide, mm-hmm. for sure. I mean, I can remember one a little too close to even think about. Um, and and I don't know. I think what I thought back then was that my pain was too much, just too much to deal with. And the interesting thing now is that I still have all of the exact same stuff. You know, like the hyper, the sensitivity that led me to hide inside of bulimia and alcoholism is the exact same sensitivity that makes me a good artist. And like this, well, I call it fire. My therapist calls it anxiety, but whatever. You know, just Whatever words. it is. Yeah. Um, that fire fear that kind of led me to live a very fearful life and almost not live is the same fire that makes me a tireless activist for women and children. You know, it's like... I didn't have to become a different person. I just had to learn how to use what I had for good. To direct it and focus and convert that internal combustion energy into good energy, not destructive, bad energy. Exactly. That's when when I speak to mental health communities, you know, people who say, why won't my person get help? Why won't my mental health is like the only illness that we have that we're so resistant to healing? You know, like people who have cancer, they want to get better. People who have, why do people with depression and anxiety, why won't we get help? It's because we, it's one of the only diseases where we actually fear that our, some of our magic is inside our disease, right? So like, um, that's why we won't take our medicine. That's why we won't go to the therapist because a little bit of it's true. It's like, we don't want this fire inside of us to be extinguished. We just want to learn how to manage it so we can use it to light up the world. Uh, and so traditional treatments feel like I don't want to become some other person because there's at least a little part of this that feels like it might in some way be good or redemptive. Yeah, which is true, but what, what people with mental illness need to know is that proper treatment will make them more of who they are and not less. Like yeah. for me, if I weren't on my medicine if I weren't with my therapist, if I weren't doing the four million things a day that I have to do to stay healthy, I wouldn't, none of this would have happened. I would not be living this life. Like besides all that stuff that you mentioned, which if it were gone tomorrow would be sad and totally fine with me, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have these three children and this husband and these dogs and this day and this mm-hmm. friendship. And you mm-hmm. know, I mean, 
all of that, all of those things that healed me, um, none of them took away who I am. They've just allowed me to become who I am. That's so profound. You, uh, so you are given entree into all of these worlds to talk about these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but not as Dr. Glennon or researcher as just this person will come and tell the truth. Yeah. Because I feel like that, I mean, especially, you know, whether it's the faith world, I mean, for me, it's the mental health world that I'm so passionate about because I just remember being trapped inside of mental illness, which really does feel like just being swallowed by a whale. I mean, mm-hmm. you're inside there and you know you're good. You know you're, you know you're good in there, but you just can't, nobody can see you. You're just trapped inside. And I just, I don't know why I was given the gift of getting out. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know why, but when so many people are not given that gift, but I do know that my gratitude for being outside of the whale enough now just drives me to want to be a bridge between people who are still inside the whale and the people who love them. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, when you first started going to meetings and was higher power a problem or did you always have a higher sense of higher power for some people? It's like, Oh man, the higher power thing. I can't do it. Did you have a, like a God consciousness or something growing up? I have always, for as long as I can remember, felt held, Mm. just felt carried. And I didn't have a lot of, I mean, I grew up Catholic, but we went to church a couple times. I I don't, there was never, there wasn't a ton that I had to unlearn, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sometimes it seems like the healthiest faith people are people whose parents didn't say anything at all. (laughs) No, no, that's a, it's. Because there's not a lot to unlearn, right? Yeah. Um, but even when I was really bad off, I just, I never felt like God was mad at me. You know, I, f- I felt like God was kind of waiting, <laughs> like, are we ever going to get started here type thing? But I didn't, I, I did. I felt like God was waiting for me to get started. And the second, like, I got up off that bathroom floor, I felt like God was like, all right, girl, let's go. I love that story. <laughs> That's a good story. <laughs> That's a good story. That's a good story. I don't want to say anything more. Mm. That's such a good story. So thank, um, thank you so much for having me at your house. Thank you for telling us. I know, I'm sure all my peeps already know of your work, but for those of you who haven't met, Glennon, Doyle, Melton, there you are. Mm. Thank you so much. Rod, thank you for... You, thank you for being the guy that's kept so many of us in the game. Oh, <laughs> come on. It's true. I'm just doing, just doing my part. Mm. All right. Grace and peace, everyone. <laughs>